When the Spirit, as the essence of the Word, makes that written Word living, immediately we receive the dispensing of the Father's life. And in that life, we can be one with all the believers in Christ Jesus. Welcome to Life Study, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Life Study is a study of the Bible emphasizing life. Jesus said in John 6, 63, The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Life Study is the fruit of over 70 years of ministry by Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Watchman Nee began this ministry in China in the 1920s and continued it until his imprisonment and eventual martyrdom. Witness Lee brought this ministry to the United States in 1962. Before we join Witness Lee with today's Life Study of the Gospel of John, we would like to give you our toll-free number through which you may obtain a free copy of today's message. That toll-free number is 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. Again, that's 1-888-543-3788. Joining us on the program today is Ron Kangas. Ron has been an editor with Living Stream Ministry for over 22 years. Ron, we are in this very deep and profound portion of the Holy Word, the Lord's Prayer to the Father in John 17. In our last program, we saw that though the prayer deals quite much with the oneness of the believers, the actual subject of the prayer is deeper than that. Bring our listeners up to date, if you would. Upon a first reading, or a rather superficial reading of John 17, we may have the impression that the central point is the oneness of the believers. Although this point is crucial, it is neither the central point of the chapter nor the subject of the Lord's Prayer in this chapter. The subject is clearly indicated in verse 1, where the Lord Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. This sets the tone and reveals the subject of the Lord's prayer. He is praying for his glorification, so that in his glorification, the Father would be glorified. The question arises, of course, what does this mean? It does not mean merely that the Lord as a man in resurrection would enter into a realm of glory or return to the Father of glory. The meaning is much deeper. Earlier in this gospel, the Lord indicated and he prophesied that he would be glorified. By glorification, the Gospel of John means that there would be, through the Lord's death and resurrection, an expression of the divine element, that is, the divine life with the divine glory, from within the humanity of the Lord Jesus. God himself is glory, and glory is God expressed. When the very God became flesh, the glory of God was concealed within the flesh of the Lord's humanity, much like the Shekinah glory was concealed within the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which tabernacle did not have 
an attractive outward appearance. The Lord gave a foretaste of his glorification in Matthew 17, when on the mountain of transfiguration, he was glorified in that he began to shine forth with the glory that was concealed within him. The glory concealed within the Lord Jesus may be compared to the life element concealed within the shell of a grain of wheat. The only way for that glory in the case of the Lord, or that life element in the case of the grain of wheat to be released, is through death issuing in resurrection. This brings us directly to the subject of John 17. When the Lord said that the hour had come, he meant that the hour had come for him to die on the cross, an all-inclusive, redeeming, and life-releasing death. When he said the hour had come for him to be glorified, he meant the time had come for the glory, the divinity, the element of God concealed within him to be released through his death and manifested in his resurrection. Furthermore, this glory by the dispensing of the divine life in and through resurrection would be imparted to the believers who need to be one so that through their oneness there can be a corporate expression of the glorified Christ for the glorious expression of the Father of glory. This is the subject of the prayer, and this is what the Lord had in view. He prayed that the glory within him would be released through death and then manifested in resurrection. This is the subject of the prayer in John 17. Now let's join Witness Lee for today's life study of John 17. Oneness, as we have seen, is the building up. Just to be together, that might be just a kind of piling up. It is not a building up. This uh, genuine oneness is of three factors. We all have to be so clear about the Lord's Prayer concerning this genuine oneness. It is in three divine factors. Number one, in the Father's name by the eternal life. The real oneness is something in the Father's name by the eternal life. Here we must realize one thing that uh, the eternal life is the reality of the Father's name. The Father's name is just the Father. And uh, the reality of the Father is the divine life. Even with uh, our physical father, you know, our physical father's reality is his life. If he doesn't have any life, and if he has no life to impart into us, he could never be our father. 
uh, my father is really my father in reality because he has a life and he has a life to impart into me. That very life imparted into me by him is the reality of him to be my father. So you see, the father's life is the reality of the title father. Whenever you call him father, you have to realize this title is realized by his divine life. Without his divine life, father is just a uh, empty term. It has no content. It has no reality. The reality of the title father is the divine life. So what? So when we are one in the name of the father, that means what? Actually, we are one in the divine life. Ron, let's take our first break at this point. Today we are on the first aspect of the oneness of the believers, the Father's life. Doesn't this imply an organic aspect of oneness and not just an outward or organizational oneness? Definitely. When we think of oneness according to the natural view, we often think of some kind of unification where you have um, independent units or individual believers that are somehow scattered or even divided, and there is a sincere attempt to unite them, to gather them together into some kind of oneness. Very often, the human attempts to achieve this rely on something merely outward or organizational. Perhaps it's some kind of adherence to an outward standard or whatever. When the Lord begins to pray for the oneness of the believers, he is not praying for an outward organizational oneness. Rather, he is praying for the preservation and for the perfecting and developing of an inward, intrinsic oneness in the divine life. To use a not too deep, but I believe helpful illustration, the oneness in a proper family is not the oneness of organization. It's not the oneness of a unification movement. It is a oneness in the human life of that family. It's the life they share that makes them intrinsically one. So here, The Lord is praying that we would remain in the oneness of the Father's life. This is an organic oneness, an intrinsic oneness, in which all the believers realize that as children of God, we have been born of God, we now have the life and nature of God, and it is this life, not our natural human life, that actually is the element of our oneness. This view of oneness is altogether in keeping with the main emphasis of the Gospel of John, which actually is the gospel of the believer's experience of Christ as eternal life. So it would be strange if in chapter 17 the Lord would switch his concept 
and pray for a mere outward oneness. Of course, we need a practical oneness, a visible oneness, but the essence of this oneness is not organizational. It is inward, subjective, intrinsic, and experiential because it is a oneness in the divine life. In brief, the crucial point here is that all the seeking children of God need to realize that the only way we can be truly one is to be one not in our natural human life, but one in the divine life which has been imparted to us through regeneration and which, hopefully, through our pursuit of the Lord, is growing in us until it fills our whole being. The more life we have, the more oneness we enjoy. This is the view here. Let's return to Witness Lee. The Father's name. After the Father, we come to the name. The names God and Jehovah adequately revealed in Old Testament. That was too clear. God, Jehovah, hundred times been mentioned in the Old Testament time. But the name Father was slightly mentioned in Isaiah 9, 6, 63, 16, 64, 8. In the Old Testament time, God's people mainly knew that God was Elohim, God, Jehovah, the Lord. But they didn't know much about the title Father. You know, it is from Matthew that the Lord always taught his disciples to call God Jehovah Father. Our Father in heaven. Father, Father, Father. He is not our adopted father. We are not his adopted children. He is our genuine father. He is not our father-in-law. But he is our father in life. Right? He is our genuine father. Why we call him father? Because we have his life in us. Because we were born of him. Born of him to have his life. This is why when we call him Father, oh, it is so sweet. And in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, we are told we like to call Abba Father. Not only call him Father, we like to use a double title, Abba Father. God is your father. It is your father in life. So it is so sweet to call our God Abba Father. How do you know that you got saved? How do you know that you are born of God? How do you know that you are a child of God? I tell you, there is a strong proof that when you call Abba Father, there is the sweetness deep within you. Let's pause here again, Ron. This is a very sweet portion dealing with the name of the Father. 
What is the significance of the Lord's making the Father's name known to the disciples here in John, whereas in the Old Testament age, this name or title wasn't used that much? Let's begin with the latter part of your question first. It is a fact that in the Old Testament, there is very little mention of God as Father. You have the prophecy in Isaiah 9-6 that Christ the Son would be called the Eternal Father. And you have other references to God as the Father, primarily as the Father of Israel. It is not until the New Testament that the Father's name is made known. And it's particularly made known to us in the Gospel of John. If we are to begin to appreciate this uh, most delightful and intimate and wonderful matter, we need to realize two central things. The first is that the expression, the Father's name, does not refer merely to a title, to some kind of word that can be disclosed and explained. The Father's name is the Father's person, the Father's being, which, in essence, is life. The very name Father suggests a begetting life, a supplying life. So to make the Father's name known is to unveil the Father's person and the Father's being in the way of life. The second matter is, it is the Son and only the Son of God who can make known the name of the Father. The New Testament emphasizes strongly, no one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son is pleased to reveal him. Now we should inquire, how did the Son make known the Father's name, that is, the Father's person and being, which are life, not primarily by talking, by explaining, but by coming in the Father's name, by working in the Father's name, by speaking the Father's word, by living by the Father's life, by seeking the Father's glory, by doing the Father's will, and by expressing the Father. The function, we may say, of the Son is to express the Father. So only through the coming of the Son of God, by and through incarnation, is it possible for the Father's name to be made known through the Son. The Lord said in chapter 14, as we saw in a previous program, if you see me, you see the Father because the Son is a transparent manifestation and expression of the Father's name, that is, a transparent expression of the Father's person, the Father's being, the Father's life. So the only way to have the Father is to have the Son. The only way to know the Father is to know the Son. The Son lived the Father, expressed the Father, and in so doing, he made known to those who know him the Father's name, the Father's being, the Father's person, which are altogether a matter of the Father's life. Now let's rejoin Witness Lee. 
after the Father's name will come the Father's word. The singular word is Logos. This is the constant word. You know, all the written word in the Bible is the Logos. But whenever you come to read the Logos, the constant word, the Spirit will pick up one sentence, a half sentence, or a phrase, or even a word to inspire you. At that time, that little part of the constant word becomes the instant word. God so loved the world that he has given them his only begotten son. This is written in John 3.16. And this is Lucas. Then, how could this word become instant word? Well, when one day you read it, and out of a sudden, my, two or three words stand out. God loved the word. Loved the word. These two words stand out. Eventually, you would say, Oh, God so loved me. So you see, the constant word right away becomes the instant word. The logos becomes the rhema. Two kinds of words, the constant and the instant. Those kinds of words are for imparting the eternal life into the believers who believe this word. All the words are not mainly for instruction, for teaching, but mainly for imparting life into the believers. Let me say a word here. We all are children of God. We all have the same Father. But you know, when we are not one with another, I tell you, we don't have the sweet sensation that we are enjoying our Father. The more we are one by His life, the more we have the sensation, my God the Father is so enjoyable. The sweet flavor of the Father's title <laughs> relies in the oneness among His children. This title, sweet title, the Father, the Abba, has been fully, what, made known to us in an experiential way because we have his life. Now we are one in him by his life. Ron, there were a few items covered in this last section, but I wonder if we could pick up the first point, that of the constant word, Logos, becoming the instant word, Rima. Help us, if you would, with these two terms and two adjectives, constant and instant. We begin, as we should, with the Logos, the constant, unchanging, infallible, inerrant, abiding Word of God. Which word is in the Scriptures? Apart from the Word of God written, We have no word from God. 
This word is constant because it's objective, it's true, however we may feel about it. It is unchanging, it is fixed, it is established forever. So we have in the scriptures the logos of God, the word of God abiding forever. By the instant word, for which we may employ the term rima, we mean that in our experience, this objective, constant, written word, under the illumination of the Spirit, becomes a living word to us. For example, we may read in Ephesians, By grace you are saved through faith. That is a constant word in the Scriptures. But one day as we're reading, that constant word becomes an instant, living, life-imparting word to us. And we begin to pray, Lord, thank you. By grace, I am saved. It's altogether by grace that I am rescued from God's judgment and brought into God's kingdom. This is not some kind of uh, peculiar mystical experience, neither is this some kind of speaking apart from the Word of God. Rather, it is the Word of God that's objective to us, becoming subjectively real to us by the operation of the Spirit. This brings us to an important point in relation to the imparting of life. The mere outward word, constant and objective, although it contains life, does not impart life to us until, through the operation of the Spirit, that word becomes a rima, an instant word, an experiential word to us. When that word becomes such an experiential word, life is imparted. God, our Father, wants to impart life. He does this through the Word, which is constant. But if we only have the Word in letter, we cannot get life. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. When the Spirit, as the essence of the Word, makes that written Word living, immediately we receive the imparting, the dispensing of the Father's life. So very practically, what do we need to do to experience more of the Father's life? We need to read the Bible. We need to read the Scriptures, saying Amen and believing and receiving. But more than that, we need to exercise our regenerated spirit and call on the Lord and open to the Lord and pray to the Lord that as we are reading, He would give us an instant word that the Spirit would cause the constant word, the written word, to become, by the operation of the Spirit, a living word in us. When that happens, we feed on God, and we receive the life of God, and in that life, we can be one with all the believers, with all of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Ron. If you would like a free copy of today's Life Study message, call toll-free at 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 1-888-543-3788. 
or write us at Living Stream Ministry, P.O. Box 2121, Anaheim, California, 92814. Or visit us at our website at www.lsm.org. Our number again is 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. Thank you for listening.